The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. It is time for Break the Business, where we empower indie creators and have some fun along the way. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week for episode 400. We have made it. We have climbed the mountain together. You viewers and listeners, me, producer Lauren, all the co-hosts, we did it. We going all the way back to 2015 at episode 001 to where we are today. Think of all the guests we've interviewed. Think of all the friendships we've created. Think of all the opportunities we've created for indie artists. What a great community we have. And it's all thanks to you. Thank you so, so much for helping us get to this magnificent point. And we need some people to celebrate it with. How about our co-host this week? Musician, investor, frontman for Gideon King and City Blog, Gideon King joining us. Hi, Gideon. Howdy. Good to be back. Good to be back. Good to have you here to celebrate this this pretty cool milestone. I got to tell you, when we did episode one of this particular program all those years ago, I mean, you weren't there for this, but like, I mean, it was it was a real slipshot operation. I got to be honest with you. We were we were holding mixing boards together with literal duct tape it took two separate laptop computers that the fans buzzed like crazy we had cheap microphones we had to turn off the air conditioner in the room that we did it in because it was so loud it was picking up on everything and we interviewed our very first guest we don't know how the stream or the recording stayed connected the whole time and now here we are today live streaming on youtube and twitch on sirius xm 145 Interviewing some of the coolest figures in the entertainment industry, amazing policymakers like Representative Deborah Ross, like we had last week, and just just building something really special here. And I'm, I'm thrilled that we had you come by as of late in these proceedings and join us. And uh, I, I, I feel so happy right now that we're here. Man, 400 shows. Um, that's a hell of a thing, as uh, my old coach used to say. Actually, I don't know if he said that, but someone said that's a hell of a thing to me once, so... It's a hell of a thing. Congrats. Thank you so much. Um, let me be, before we get into the proceedings, and we got a lot of great topics to talk about. We're also going to be joined later in the show by filmmaker Nancy Cates, uh, makes spectacular documentaries about some of the most important figures um, in our country, and uh, and she's doing it independently. And so we don't have nearly enough independent filmmakers on this show, and so I think she's a great person to have for our fourth under episode. That's coming up later today, so... Uh, or later on this show, so stick around for that. That's going to be a blast. But in the meantime, before we get to her, before we get to some of our topics, I want to take a couple minutes and just be really self-indulgent with you, Gideon, to kind of let you in and let the viewers and listeners in, frankly, on what this means to me. And just, yeah, super self-indulgent. We're going to make this all about me for the next three minutes. (laughs) Because like this is a really special moment. Because to me, what what episode four hundred of this show means, aside from just 
just a, a, a terrific amount of ego on my part to think that people wanted to hear my voice for 400 episodes and perhaps a waste of my time. But what it really means for me, in all honesty, is a proof of concept. Because the, this story of this podcast and everything it represents goes all the way back to me being a third-year law student and making the decision at that point in my life that I wanted to be an entertainment lawyer. It was something that I always kind of flirted with. I used to read Donald Passman's book back in high school, and I would uh, read Billboard magazines every day in class. I used to try to tuck them into my math textbook so I could read the Billboard magazine during class. It never worked because those damn Billboard magazines were so big you could see it like on the outside of the book. But this was something that meant a lot to me. And so by my third year of law school, I'd made a decision. This is what I wanted to do. I wanted to work with creative professionals. I wanted to be an entertainment lawyer. And everything in the industry told me that's not something you're going to get to do. Every law firm I interviewed with in law school said, um, if you work for us, you won't be doing entertainment law. There's not enough entertainment law work out there. We have one guy at the firm that does entertainment law. He hoards his work because he's been doing it for 20 years. He doesn't want to train his competition by giving you some of his work. This is a very niche field. you got to usually do something else for 10 or 15 years, and then maybe you can transition into entertainment law. But it's not something you're going to get to do at this firm. And so, you know, I was getting doors slammed in my face, further compounded by the fact that this was 2009, 2011, in that range. So it's the height of the financial crisis of something that that I know you're intimately familiar with, Gideon. And so there's just no jobs of any kind, right? So, I mean, you know, I was being told, look, you're lucky to find any legal job. Stop trying to find something in this dream field of entertainment law that you want to do because you're going to be lucky to practice anything given the current state of the economy. And so when I graduated from law school, pretty early on in my career, I kind of made a bet on myself and said, if I'm not going to get an opportunity at a law firm to practice this law, if no veteran entertainment lawyer is going to take me under their wing to to show me the ropes, because, again, these people are these older entertainment lawyers did not want to train the next generation. They don't want to trade their trade their competition. I'm going to do it myself. And I'm going to start this project myself. I'm going to take any musicians that come in the door. I'm going to offer my services at frustratingly low rates because I just want to get experience. I want to learn about this field. And along the way, I told myself, we're going to help these people. And so I was giving, doing lots of pro bono work. I wrote the Break the Business book because I just wanted to give the information away for free. There was huge information asymmetry between these big labels, these big record companies, and the musicians I worked with. I wanted to level the playing field, so I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote. And then from that begat the podcast. And so, and along the way, as we were informing people, I started to build my own kind of niche and my own kind of practice. The more I talked about this stuff, the more I created, built up this podcast the more it built my legal practice. And so I was able to create an entertainment law practice helping indie creators out of nothing because there wasn't a law firm that was willing to take me under their wing. And so to me, when I say that this podcast is a proof of concept, it represents what I wanted to happen, which was getting to be a person who could help indie creators, building my practice while building this podcast along the way, making tons of connections in the entertainment industry that I would never have been able to make but for doing the show, up to and including meeting people like you, Gideon. And if you told me 
10 years ago or, or whatever, you know, 400 episodes ago when we started this in 2015, that this is where I'd be now, I'd say you're dreaming. And it's, it's so great to be here. And I'm, and I'm hopeful that it's just the beginning, that 400 episodes from now, we're having another conversation about what this has become and, and all the people we're helping and, and the relationships we've created for the viewers and listeners along I mean, the way. And it's just, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, I mean, the thing is you did what people do when they have success at something, which is you adopted the brick by brick methodology. If you don't accept whether you're building a band or, or a podcast or a woodshed to store wood in that you're doing it brick by brick, um, then you, you're not realistic and you're not real. Um, and, uh, man, if you're still in the brick by brick mood, um, then you'll be, uh, you'll be talking about the same type of thing at your 800th show in, in, in my view. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not just saying that because I'm on the show. I'm saying it because everything I've ever done that is, that is successful. I'm not saying that I've done that many things that have been successful, but I've done a few. It's always brick by brick. It's painful. Um, it's exciting and it's frustrating and it's rewarding. But brick by brick is the only way, unless, you know, you want to write a hit song and, you know, be on tour with Taylor Swift, which I know is your longtime crush. That's really your goal. That'd be pretty rad. I'll take that. That's, I mean, as satisfying as this journey has been doing it brick by brick, as you, you so aptly put it, I'll absolutely take the fast track, write a song with Taylor Swift round if, we can, if we can swing that. But in the meantime, yeah, totally. this is a pretty good situation too, and I'm grateful to have it. And the, the list of people that would need to be thanked to properly credit all the folks that have made this happen is an entirely too long one. Um, you know, starting with co-hosts like you and Katie and Zach and producer Lauren and a lot of the co-hosts that we've had along the way who've joined us for uh, various periods. Elisa Rockdock, Metal Dave going all the way back to episode one. Um, you know, my dearest friend going back since we were like 12 years old and you know, the hundreds of guests that we've had on the show and the the viewers and listeners we've built, the viewers and listeners who have along the way become clients of mine, obviously people that I, I treasure and think really highly of, and it's, it's terrific. And so, cool. I mean, in lieu of doing some kind of thing for episode 400 where we have some silly kind of stuff that we did, like for episode 300 where we had like goofy songs and break the business trivia and things like that, I thought I would just be heartfelt this week or this time around for this milestone. I dig um, it. But anyway, we, we, in the midst of all this, we do have a show to do. And uh, I wanted to start with uh, one more piece of horn tooting for us. Uh, our interview last week with a representative, Deborah Ross, about the Protect Working Musicians Act caught a little bit of fire, as I imagine things do when you interview a sitting member of Congress. But... We had an article about our interview picked up in HypeBot, and I've been told there are some other publications that are asking about this interview as well, because we were basically the first media outlet to do a radio interview with Representative Deborah Ross about this really important piece of legislation that would allow independent musicians to level the playing field in negotiations with platforms like Spotify for collective bargaining. And so that's really really cool and it's it's nice to see that happen and, and it's nice that we played even a small part in 
continuing that really important conversation around this uh, great piece of legislation, because if there if there was ever something, Gideon, that demonstrated the need for why we need laws like the Protect Working Musicians Act that would increase the bargaining power of independent musicians when negotiating with Spotify, we got it in the form of a recent uh, website that was created by the law firm Manat Phillips and Phillips or Manat Phelps and Phillips. Sorry. Um, that they put out their own version of a streaming calculator that shows people just how little these major streaming services can spe- can pay, particularly what I think is the worst offender in this space, which is Spotify, who is also the largest streaming service. Lauren, if you could, can you put up a a the website, this Minat website, the streaming calculator they put together? I really like this web page because it's super user friendly. All you got to do is just type in how many streams your song gets. And it will tell you exactly how much Spotify would pay for those streams and how much Apple Music would pay for those streams. Uh, simple, simple. And what I like about it is it does demonstrate the stark difference between how little Spotify pays its artists and how slightly better Apple Music is. So if you could, Lauren, like just to demonstrate this for Gideon, can you go and just type in a million streams? You know, which is a, by any objective measure, most artists would be thrilled to have a million streams i think that's a billion that you just typed in um which would be really great there we go <laughs> a million streams of of a that's song right? right yeah yeah and so you can see from looking at the calculator and I'll, I'll i'll narrate it here for the the radio and podcasting audience if you get a million streams now this this model assumes that you own everything about this work. You are the sole writer of this particular track and you own 100% of the track. There's no label skimming royalties. There's no publishing company that has a co-pub deal with you that's taking half your copyright. This assumes you own everything. If you have your song streamed a million times, which we'd all be pretty happy with, most independent artists would be happy to have their music streamed a million times, Spotify will pay you $4,798 and Apple Music will pay you Eight thousand eight hundred and three. So a little bit more. And to, to break this down into per stream amounts, Gideon, I crunch the numbers here, and they say lawyers are bad at math. Uh, the Apple, who pays a little bit better, will actually pay the artist, you know, all in, including songwriter royalties and uh, recording artist royalties, about eight tenths of a cent per stream, almost a penny per stream. And of that amount, what, what I think the other thing that this calculator does, which is really cool, if you scroll down, Lauren. It actually shows you how much Apple keeps as it's cut. And so if you stream your music a million times, Apple takes about two to three tenths of a cent per stream, which is effectively like a 22% commission. So they take about one fifth of all the money that your song generates for the, their service. Contrast that with Spotify that is paying, you know, that pays you less than five-tenths of a cent per stream, so less than half of a cent per stream, so a lot less than Apple, and pays itself about the same, uh, and keeps about the same amount as Spotify does, or Apple Music does, about two to three-tenths of a cent per stream. But because it's paying the artist less, it is effectively keeping 32% of the money that that song generates. So Apple is, so if you, you know, put it down into numbers, for its work, Apple is taking about one-fifth of the money generated. Spotify is taking a third. And, you know, it's a, it, it's it's crazy to walk through this, but I think that is, you know, it's, it's a stark demonstration of how very different these services are. Now, a lot of people will ask, why does Spotify pay so much less? Why is Spotify giving artists, 
five tenths of a cent per stream and why does Apple paying eight tenths of a cent? Now we can't obviously look into Spotify's books and kind of get a straight answer on this, but the conventional wisdom is what's happening here is that Spotify just isn't bringing in as much money per stream as Apple Music is. Spotify has a free tier. A lot of Spotify's users are not paying anything for the music that they stream. They're pay they're they're getting ads. And so Spotify is getting less money in per stream than Apple does, which just has a completely monthly payment subscription model, no free tier. And so as a consequence of that, Apple can pay more, a lot more per stream than Spotify does. So when I think but Gideon, sorry, go ahead. There's also, I mean, you've got to consider the ecosystems that these DSPs are in. I mean, the a Apple music is embedded in the device. And because Apple Music is embedded in the device, Apple is getting a benefit from that embed, if you want to use that term of art, that has, that has an incredible economic um, impact for them. It is keeping people inside the four corners of that phone. It's keeping people right in the environment that they want to keep people in. So the fact that they pay out more, um, sort of considered in an abstract tunnel, um, is noteworthy, but to me not as meaningful because Spotify is a discrete commercial entity formed for the purpose of being a digital streaming platform. And they are what they are and they have to stand on their own two feet and make it through the jungle themselves. Not that I'm defending them as, a, as the uh, an altruistic entity, but it is really really different because apple gets benefits that spotify could never dream of having this service embedded in their phone so the fact that you know spotify pays a little less um is i suppose disappointing on the margin but for me completely understandable given that they are two completely different beasts in a completely different jungle I mean, that does make some intuitive sense, but I, I think on the other side of that, there are a couple considerations that come to mind for me. One is, even though Apple is embedded on people's devices, if you are an iPhone user, Spotify has larger market share. So it's not it like Spotify is trailing Apple Music. And obviously, if you are an Android user or a you know, Pixel user or something like that, you know, you're not going to have Apple Music on your phone. So Spotify right. is the market leader, and they're still paying the least. Yeah. Um, furthermore, there are some other non-native streaming services like Napster or uh, like Tidal, which pay more than Spotify does. Right. And, you know, they don't, they don't have the market share that Spotify does. Um, I think, you know, to, to the point of Deborah Ross's legislation, the Protect Working Musicians Act, one way that this could be addressed is... Through some kind of legislation that would allow independent creators to band together and collectively bargain with Spotify and say, hey, Spotify, if you want all of our music, if you want, you know, we're, we're a consortium, a union of sorts that represents 10,000, 100,000 independent musicians. If you want all of our music on your streaming service, you have to pay out something closer to what Apple Music pays or what Tidal pays. And, you know, perhaps that could be the solution to something like this. But, you know, to me, this is untenable. And, you know, and if, if we are, if we're going to stay in an industry where we want recorded music to be a reliable source of income for independent creators, this model has to change. 
because right now it's a model where the vast, you know, 99%, 95-99% of musicians cannot make a living wage on their recorded music as long as we are a streaming first industry when it comes to recorded music. But the countervailing force to all of that hopeful stuff, musicians in effect unionizing, exercising collective bargaining power, the countervailing force, which to me is not just a force, but a, a, a tidal wave, is that the distribution, and we can talk more about this later in the episode, but the distribution of music has become so democratized that convincing some person who can just literally upload their music onto Spotify and get it out there, so to speak, and get it out there quickly, um, is so powerful that that getting enough people to be part of a movement to collectively bargain will not be easy because there will be many people who just say, I am so incredibly pleased just to get my next release out there in this environment, which of, sort of avails me of the shock. It avails me of the big shot that I might go viral. I might get good algo streaming on Spotify. So there is a, a kind of, um, I don't want to say insidious. Yeah, I do want to say insidious. There's an insidious, <laughs> there's an insidious democracy, if you want to put it that way, to the construct of Spotify. And Apple Music, again, I regard as a different beast, but but that that for me will make that type of organization, that labor organization that you're sort of alluding to, it ain't going to make it easy. It's going to make it complex, hard, messy, and maybe not, maybe not possible. Maybe, well, maybe. I'd like to pick up on what you were saying there about how there could, there's always going to be musicians that just want to get their music out there and are trying to just make their stuff go viral. And they could be willing to give up a lot to make yeah. that music go viral. And I think that that's absolutely true. I know plenty of musicians just like that. And I think it's that impulse that a lot of artists share that I think could lead to the scenario that former Break the Business guest Rob Avalo brought up in a tweet recently talking about like what the next what, what, what like the the end game could be or at least the next wave could be for streaming as streaming as streaming platforms are looking to make more money off of you know off of this industry and might decide that instead of taking money just from the music consumers maybe there are ways to take money from the actual musicians themselves lauren can you put up the rob abelo tweet for us he always has the best tweets about the industry really thought-provoking stuff so uh, recently rob wrote and i'll read it out here for the viewers and for the uh listening audience uh he said quote music streamers will become increasingly paid or, or he started by saying bold prediction music streamers will become increasingly pay to play as they look to drive revenue and realize creators are willing to spend far more money than consumers ever will for mass consumption. Right to your point there, Gideon. Continuing, they will charge for things like playlist pitching, annual track hosting, boosts to reach your own audience. Initial versions of this are already happening, and the music industry is like a frog slowly boiling in water, happily paying to cut in line for a sliver of your attention. One, the experience for listeners will deteriorate, and two, people will find better options. These will be mostly direct-to-fan, powered by communities and collectives as the artist-fan experience moves from mega-platforms to art-eccentric spaces. Give it five years. Now, I'm not so sure about the second part of what he's bringing up there about how this could cause people 
to distance themselves and from streaming platforms and that whole model. I am more concerned about the first part of Rob Robert's tweet about how streaming services could say, man, there are a lot of musicians out there desperate for attention on our platforms, desperate to get favored by our streaming services algorithm to put their music in front of more people's ears. I bet these viewers and listeners might be willing to pay for that privilege. And lest you think that I am being ridiculous about this, keep in mind that it was only since about 2020 Spotify has actually had a feature where artists can agree to take a lesser stream payout in exchange for a boost on Spotify's algorithm. So we're already seeing some version of this. What Rob is predicting is just kind of the next level of it, where it's going to be instead of getting a reduction in your stream payout for an algorithmic boost, we're just going to let you pay us directly, artist, for an algorithmic boost. And I think a lot of people would be willing to pay for that, which just, I mean, seems quite troublesome to me. I mean, look, when I dissect this tweet and I just read it again along with you, I have a few reactions. Reaction, my, my overall reaction is he's completely wrong and he's completely right. Um, one, one of the places, like how's ha, that for hedging? Um, yeah. how's, that for, how's that for saying a lot and saying nothing? Um, so, so where he's completely wrong is if he thinks that the experience for listeners will deteriorate, that's not what's going to happen. Spotify, Deezer, AudioMag, DSPs are technology platforms. That's like predicting that your dashboard on the next Toyota five years from now is going to is 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 not going to be as advanced. These are technology platforms which will become more and more advanced. They will offer more intuitive services, more AI playlists that are customized to what you like, what you might like, and that's already happening. So that. That isn't going to happen. These large monopolistic technology beasts are not going to cannibalize the very essence of what they offer, which is a growingly seamless and, frankly, awesome way to listen to music. I know I consume Spotify like a, a, a you know, like someone in the in, in the desert um, who needs water. So that's just not that's off base to me. What what he is getting at in two ways. And another thing, well, there's another thing that's off base. Here's the thing. Everybody is saying that the new model is going to be artists going direct to consumer. Um, and in fairness, if you're Ed Sheeran um, or you're John Legend or Taylor Swift, yes, you can get people potentially to pay a premium to get access to, you know, pictures of you eating pizza and posting and dancing with your friends on Halloween. But if you're a mid-tier artist, which most of the market is, um, you're not going to get users. In fact, I've spoken to managers as recently as this week who said it's completely impossible. This artist economy direct to consumer thing sounds really elegant and sounds really great, but it doesn't work because because when you have a mid-tier artist who's a person that sells 8,000 tickets, that's not mid-tier, but a successful artist that sells 8,000 tickets a night, while their fans love them, their fans are not going to pay an extra 4 bucks a month or even 10 bucks a month just to get their few, their few um, sort of direct consumer tweets, pictures, communications. Okay, they're, they're, they're not going to do that. Um, one, because for those prices to make the model work, you can get the world at your feet. You can get Netflix for nine bucks and Spotify for nine bucks. So that's that's been tried by managers and artists all over the place. And it thus far 
has really failed because um, artists spend an immense amount of time putting that together, one, and two, fans don't seem to be buying into it unless it's fans of an absolute cult like Taylor Swift. So we should be careful to assume that that is, is, is really going to take hold. Where I do think he's striking at some, some really important things is the money. The money flow is all screwed up. Think of it. The distributors get billions of songs. They get paid by their artists on those songs. And then they offload to the streaming services, Spotify, um, billions of songs. And Spotify has to ingest it, organize it technologically, and then send it out to the consumer in a seamless technological package replete with, again, intuitive AI functions. And so the distributors are getting the money, but Spotify isn't. And right now, Spotify is barely break, breaking even as a public stock. And so something's got to shift where the DSPs somehow change the economic balance of the industry and say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We got to get paid for ingesting millions of songs a day, most of which, frankly, are economically worthless units. And so that's a really fascinating imbalance that I think um, has to be or will ultimately be corrected, because while we tend to demonize Spotify for not paying artists enough, actually, um, what it might be is that artists are paying the distributors too, enough, uh, uh, too much or perhaps not being allowed to spread their dollars out in a way that's most efficient, if you, if you sort of hear where I'm coming from. And one more thing, and then I'll, 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 I'll move on. Spotify right now, you can do three things. You can do Spotify marquee. I do it, okay? You go on Spotify marquee, and basically that allows you, when you release a new song, to make sure all of your followers are notified. That's one thing you can do. You can do an ad and say, hey, I'm Gideon King, I'm Ryan Carella, we're releasing our new duet song together. And by people the way, that, that and people love that we're gonna sing, we should sing together and, and pole <laughs> dance and pole dance. Um, but um, you no, can do that. That's the subscription model, you gotta pay five yeah, bucks totally, for that. Totally, but you can do that. But by the way, those ads only go out to non-paying subscribers for Spotify. So who you're really hitting and who you're really engaging not so easy to decipher. And then again, if you're John Legend or Justin Bieber or Taylor Swift, you can do the banner on the website and have your, you know, have your face on the website. But that would cost a fortune for lowly artists like me um, or would be given away free to, to, to Taylor Swift. So Spot, he's so right in his tweet that, that artists are paying for more of these type of marquee services and that will continue on. Um, but I got to tell you, I just think Spotify is going to get bigger and wiser and more seamless. And I think that about the bigger, the bigger players. So I think his tweet is, 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 is exciting and sort of riles up the animal instincts, but most of it doesn't happen. I mean, I mean, it's, I mean, I mean, the second piece of it, right. The, the artists all leaving Spotify and Moss to, you know, create these direct to fan platforms, you know, that's, I, I think, at least at a wide scale, that's wishful thinking. Certainly, we have plenty of evidence of isolated use cases that we've had on, we've chronicled on this program yeah. of artists who have developed these pl communities on platforms like Patreon Absolutely. and are making Absolutely. lots of money from it. But they'll be the first one to tell you to, to what you said, Gideon. 
they had to invest a lot of resources yeah. into that. They had to yeah. spend years building that fan base, developing that fan base, getting that, those fans to love them enough that they're willing to part with their dollars consistently on a monthly basis. That's not something you're going to get just because you've written a good song. Those people are putting time and money yeah. into building yeah. a fan base to make them that rabid. And so that's not something that's just going to be able to be done for artists across the board. Those are isolated use cases. But everything else that he brought up there about how the streaming platforms are going to start trying to take money from artists. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. That's that's going to happen. That's already happening. And I think as Spotify continues to grow and effectively kind of gets a monopoly over this sector, like I think they are working their way towards just being the only real player in this space. I mean, aside from Apple Music, which again is just sort of limited to people who have iPhones and Spotify is still bigger. The bigger they get, the more power they're going to have to say, we're going yeah. to pay you even less than we do now. Because we said so. Good luck having anybody yeah. know of your music yeah. if yeah. you don't have your music on our streaming service. Now, Which, Ryan, again, one thing, speaks yeah. to why we need things like perhaps collective action to yeah. to uh, help artists band together, level the playing field. And as you noted, that's not an easy thing, right? Getting hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of, of independent musicians to collectively work together is quite an exercise in cat herding but um i from where i'm sitting i'm not seeing what else is the way to fix this um it's a hard pro it's a it's a super hard problem i mean as you and i've discussed before in the show the role that music plays in people's lives the entire economic construct of the business uh, music has become more commoditized than ever so it's a really hard problem the other thing that's mentioned which i think is a really interesting question he mentions artists potentially paying spotify for a greater exposure to playlists obviously the holy grail when you release your song although i'm not sure it should be but the, one of the holy grails when you really you know when i release a song i call up my manager and I say hey how's it going we on any editorial playlists on spotify right i must i must call them four times a week right i can't imagine how <laughs> annoying i must be so 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 but but on the other hand to be able to pay to get greater exposure to playlists is such a direct hit at the kind of open architecture, democratic nature of what Spotify is in theory supposed to be, that I wonder again if that's actually going to happen. You know, Ryan? I mean, it's payola. If this were terrestrial <laughs> yeah. radio, it would yeah. be a violation of federal law. That's when what Spotify I'm does it, we're just going to call it good business. That's what I'm getting at, and that's why I think they're going to be very careful about these things. But, yeah. you know... Man, who the hell knows? It's hard. It, it does sound like a great way to immediately attract the attention of Congress and get them to uh, pretty upset to with you. Totally. All right, let's take a break. I'm really, really excited to talk to Nancy Cates after this. A terrific independent filmmaker. Um, has, uh, you know, let me give a little bit of background before we bring her in, before we go to break, just to let people know uh, how cool this uh, this particular guest is going to be. So uh, 20 years ago, our guest Nancy Cates... Uh, made a documentary called Brother Outsider, The Life of Bayard Rustin, the civil, uh, Bayard Rustin, the civil rights leader. And in 2023, Netflix is going to create a, a feature film uh, that has all these A-list celebrities in it about Bayard Rustin. It's got all these A-list celebrities in it. It's executive produced by the Obamas. And uh, it's going to come out, and that's going to be really wild. And a lot of people are crediting Nancy's documentary with sort of igniting the our conscious you know the the collective conscious about this person's life and getting us to this point where now we have this netflix feature film so 
And it was all done by an independent filmmaker. So excited to talk to her about that. Don't go anywhere. We got Nancy Cates coming up next on Break the Business. Ryan Carella here. I hope you're enjoying the show and I hope that you're getting a lot out of it. I do what I do because I care about creators like you. A lot. I've dedicated my career to helping creative professionals, entrepreneurs, and organizations move forward. I do it by hosting this program, and I'm also proud to do it in my legal practice. If you're a creative professional looking for solutions-oriented legal services to help you further your goals, I'd love to help. My firm RKPA does contracts, commercial law, copyright, trademark, and more. Visit rkpalaw.com to learn more. That's rkpalaw.com. Ryan A. Carella, PA, Miami, Florida. Streaming services for Break the Business provided by L.E.K. Entertainment. L.E.K. Entertainment is a full-service entertainment company offering everything from consultations to full-scale events and productions, including audio and video productions, voiceovers, staged theatrical productions, script and music development, and streaming services. For more information, visit lekentertainment.com. L.E.K. Entertainment wants to help you bring your story to life. Thanks for supporting Break the Business. If you have a question or topic that you want us to discuss, email us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can follow the host, that's me, on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R, and you can follow the show at The BTB Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook, and on all major podcast platforms. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Break the Business, everybody. Ryan Corelli here with Gideon King, celebrating episode 400 of this delightful little program <laughs> I, I love that sound effect. It's so I stupid. You, I think it's like a garage band sound effect. We've just kept it ever since. And oh, it's this is our wherever you're checking us out, wherever you have checked us out over the years, whether it was the very early podcast days up until now where we have the live streaming or Sirius XM 145, wherever you are, are checking out this program, however long you've been with us, even if you're one of the diehards going back to 2015, we are just so happy to be here with you and to deliver this program week after week. Let's go ahead and bring out our guest, Gideon. She is an acclaimed documentary filmmaker whose works include the iconic 2003 doc, Brother Outsider, The Life of Bayard Rustin. With the upcoming release of the Netflix feature film biopic on Bayard Rustin's life, many have been inspired recently to look back on our guest's original documentary on the iconic civil rights leader. We are excited to talk to her all about this. Let us welcome Nancy Cates on to Break the Business. Hi, Nancy. Hi, thank you for having me. Nice to meet you. Uh, so thrilled to be chatting with you. Uh, can I be completely honest with you, Nancy? And you've probably heard this before, at least I hope you've heard this before, or else I'll probably feel really dumb saying this. But um, I went through you know, years of public school and took all kinds of history classes and never learned about Bayard Rustin. The first time I came across this civil rights figure who was an important figure in American history was through documentaries like yours and through reading about him later in life. I don't know if, I don't know if you've heard those kind of sentiments before from others and, and the role your documentary played, but for the viewers and listeners out there who might not be familiar, can you, t one, talk a little bit about that, and two, can you give us a little bit of background on who Bayard Rustin was? 
Um, sure. Well, let me take the first one first. Um, we don't really teach history very well in this country, I'm afraid. I mean, I had the best education that you can have in America. I think I'm allowed to say that. And I didn't hear about Byron Rustin in school either. I mean, you know, times were different. Unfortunately, our educational system is about, you know, one person. So if you think about the March on Washington in 1963, you're going to think about Dr. King making his very, very important speech at the end of the day, but you're not going to think about Byron Rustin who organized that whole march and got 250,000 people to Washington, D.C., which had never been done before. But, you know, as a queer person, as an African-American person, these figures in general are not taught enough in American schools. I mean, this is changing. Like California has, I think it's AB 105, which requires California schools to teach, you know, Latino history, Native American history, you know, feminist and women's history. Um, but, you know, I don't know that it's actually enforced. There's now a law here, but this is California. I don't know what it's like, say, in Florida. Um, I, well, we don't like, have any problems, uh, you know. <laughs> no, but I mean, in other words, like we, we have <laughs> teaching schools. stuff in Florida. <laughs> we have public schools, but we don't necessarily have public history in those schools. And I can't solve this problem, although it's very gratifying to me that my work is shown in schools all the time to try to, in some ways, rectify this a little bit. Absolutely. Um, as, I'm sorry, I didn't really mean to go down that road about Florida, but you, you know, <laughs> I, I wasn't doing that on purpose, but we can talk about that if you want to. Um, <laughs> is this being broadcast in Florida? Can we say gay? <laughs> it, gets, um, it gets bleeped in Florida. They. I, I'm so sorry. Um, I guess we're not in a school right at the moment. Um, so who Byron <laughs> Rustin was. So Rustin was um, raised in Westchester, Pennsylvania, um, which is not far from Philadelphia, but it's it seems like another universe. Um, he attended several different um, black schools, you know, colleges, and he was kind of a troublemaker. So he got thrown out of at least one of them. Like he, the food, the food at one of them was very bad. So he organized a protest to improve the, the food at his college. And he, he got thrown out. Um, he went to New York. He was a very gifted singer among other things. Um, so for a while he sang with Josh White and the Carolingian. Carolinians, um, and could have been a professional musician, but he, he did record a couple of albums, but that wasn't, you know, where his genius was. And he started working as an organizer um, in various ways with African-American leaders, with, you know, peace activists. Um, there was a group called the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which was founded by a man named A.J. Musty. I mean, all of this is a little bit more detailed than maybe you need, but he had been doing nonviolent protest work for a long time prior to what we consider the modern civil rights movement and, and Martin Luther King. And in fact, when the Montgomery bus boycott started in the 50s, Rustin went there to educate King. Like Rustin never became as famous as Dr. King, but he was a very important mentor and an ally of King's and, and really had like brilliant strategic thinking about how to achieve civil rights in the 50s and 60s. So I hope that's enough of an introduction. Yeah. And what was happening there that Rustin, Rustin's name wasn't being amplified alongside the other civil rights leaders at the time, folks like Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks or John Lewis or these folks? Is it um, was it just the fact that he was, you know, he was LGBT. And so there was this notion that, you know, progress could only sort of happen one step at a time and, and inviting intersectionality into this civil rights movement of that era was they thought you know, the civil rights leaders at the time thought that to be a bridge too far. 
Well, he was considered a target for people who wanted to discredit the movement. You know, there was one of the reasons that Dr. King started the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was actually Rustin's idea that that ministers would lead the civil rights movement, is that it was thought that everyone had to be absolutely morally impeccable um, because otherwise they would be discredited. And so by being gay, you know, at that time, he was seen as being sort of morally suspicious and also the target of blackmail. And, and people did try to blackmail him in different ways or discredit the movement by association with him. So, you know, he didn't, he understood the realities of this. There was like, you know, people were playing very hardcore politics, you know, before the Voting Rights Act of 1964 and the Civil Rights Act, you know, you wanted to get your goals achieved. So even though it was very unfair at times, the way he was treated, he saw the larger goal of achieving civil rights as more important than, you know, maybe his own place in the firmament. I mean, I, I can't speak for him, but I, I think that that's true. And, and, and similarly, King at one point, like stepped away from him because he was being threatened um, by one of his own allies, you know, who wanted something from him, Adam Clayton Powell, you know, but Russell was just too easy a target, I think, for enemies yeah. within and without the civil rights movement. Well, or not enemies within, but people who disagreed with King or what have you. And because of works like yours, you know, we're we're finally starting to establish the legacy of Bayard Rustin now in modern times. And, you know, I think about the documentary you made back in two thousand three about his life, and now here we are 20 years later, we're on the precipice of a major motion picture uh, that's being distributed by Netflix about Rustin's life. That's got a bunch of A-listers in it. It's got the Obama's executive producing. Do you feel that your film played a role in helping bring Rustin's life to Hollywood's attention? Oh, absolutely. And, and also the Obamas gave him a Medal of Freedom in 2013, posthumously. And I mean, the president then President Obama quoted from our movie. So clearly we brought him to the Obama's attention as well. Um, I, you know, wish maybe they had asked me to consult or something, but they didn't. But clearly they used our film. There's archival footage in the narrative film that, you know, is in our film. And they also recreate some of the archival footage so that the actors can be in the shot, um, you know, which is a little painful for a documentary filmmaker to see. But, but I, I understand why they did it, of course. But, I mean, it is a common lament of something I hear from documentary filmmakers, particularly independent documentary filmmakers, which is um, you often will move the ball forward on a lot of important conversations. And then when the ball moves forward, people forget to sort of acknowledge the person that, you know, set, you know, started the conversation in the first place. It is It is in many ways a a thankless endeavor that folks in your position do, Nancy, but uh, nonetheless an important one, and certainly we acknowledge the great work that you and your team did here. Uh, how did you get your start in filmmaking? I'm always interested in hearing the origin stories of indie filmmakers. Um, thank you for asking. So I was a journalist um, in New York and Boston, print journalist. Oh, here comes my cat. I don't know if cats are allowed on podcasts, but... <laughs> we always welcome pets. It's a... a, a 
a tradition for the last 400 episodes of this show. Whenever pets show up, they are always welcome here, especially adorable cats like this one. Well, this is Zoe's tail, which is not the most adorable part, but um, maybe she'll turn around for the audience. Come on. Zoe. I don't know what it is about when people come on our show, Gideon. Like maybe when something about when people are talking about their lives, like it just makes their cats just want to be close to them and get right in front of the camera. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she's more exciting than I am. I have no well, idea. Uh, uh, safe oh, to say that you know your cat's butt is the highlight of this 400 <laughs> show 400 her. episodes on the air He's i wouldn't have it any me. other way He's me, so <laughs> <unfair>. <laughs> um all right so i'm gonna try to answer your question so i was a print journalist <laughs> and i was asked to do this little sort of video like accompaniment to something i wrote and i worked with an editor and i made a little music edit actually that the editor didn't make. I was like, can't we do this? And I didn't know anything about editing. And I just had this feeling in my, the pit of my stomach, like, wow, I have to do this, which is really not, I do not encourage people to make career decisions based on something like a feeling in the pit of your stomach. But um, I wound up applying to Stanford's documentary program and going there and, and just feeling like, yes, this is, I, it, there was, I liked writing, but there was something about using all the different elements of, you know, sound design and music and, you know, images and words that I just found very exciting and still do actually. Um, so that's where it started. And how has the work that you do changed since when you started? Like what, what are, what things are most different about the work that independent filmmakers, documentary filmmakers do today versus say 20 years ago or 25 years ago? Well, Sadly, I went to film school when they were still using 16 millimeter. And as soon as they left, they bought all the computers. So I, I kind of was trained in the 1920s technology. Oh, no. And now I live in the 21st century and I, I'm still a little resentful. I'm envisioning you like walking out with your graduation regaler and they're just reel, wheeling in all the computers. And It was kind of like that. I mean, I, you know, I was very fortunate. I, made a uh, film about American women who served in the Vietnam War that received the Student Academy Award in 1995. Um, but yeah, the, the, that was like the high point and the low point was realizing that I had not been trained on nonlinear editing systems, which were going to become, you know, immediately become the standard for how people make films. But um, on the other hand, I actually think that that was an amazing thing to learn. And there's something about touching film and touching mag, which is what you put audio on that you know, it's kind of this lost thing, the way people no longer take pictures with actual photographic film, they take them with their cam their uh, phones or digital cameras. But, um, you know, it was a wonderful thing to learn. It was just, unfortunately, a little bit out of sync with what was going on in technology. <laughs> Nancy, I have a question for you. Sure. Um, first of all, congrats, uh, congratulations on this, you know, on your body of work, frankly, all of it. Um, <laughs> You know, I, you know what? I knew he was going to do that. That's I the almost, highlight. By it's the way, I, I almost didn't say it because I thought he would <laughs> he would not be able to control it. But, you know, it's his show. So there's nothing we could do about it. Um, so, you know what? Um, one of the things that I'm frightened by now, nowadays, I sound like an old guy nowadays. Um, one of the things I'm frightened by is the distribute the extent to which people rely on social media for their information and you don't strike me as someone who's 
life goal it is to have 100,000 followers on Instagram, unless I've greatly misjudged your your psyche. Um, I, but I but have, I, I'm not even yeah, interested in Instagram. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And that's what that's what I'm sort of getting at. So I just wonder in today's world where the multiplicative effect of social media on information distribution is like scary, dangerous, factually bereft, um, and sort of just like horrid. I'm wondering if you view your your role as a documentarian, and I don't know that that's a right word, a documentary filmmaker, let's say that, that sounds more, 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 more accurate. I wonder if you view your role as different, more important, uh, you know, as it, you know, as it sort of juxtaposed against this, 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 this other form of documenting in quotes, the truth, which is Instagram and TikTok and so on, because I personally love documentaries. It's just nice to see a slow cooked treatment of a subject. And so um, I'm wondering where you, you feel you fit in that world and, and what your reaction to social media is, or are you just, you're just a documentary filmmaker, you're gonna do what you're gonna do. And I just, your general comments on, on your business versus that business, if you know what I'm, if you know what I'm, if you get my drift. You know, I was listening to you earlier when you were talking about Spotify and Apple and I was getting really bummed out. And so this, this, um, <laughs> sorry, sorry. continuing sorry. number, I mean, <laughs> idiot, I, I, you know, I say this with, you know, genuine affection here, but um, I mean, I don't even know how to address, it's a good question that you're raising. Um, I think that you know, people who write books and people who, you know, take years making films we're yeah, we are I, slow cooked is, I don't know if I like that word, but yeah, it does take years to make our work and, and we do it very carefully. Um, it's not, I mean, there's a place for both, right? Like, you know, would we know anything about, you know, police brutality if people weren't taking video on their cell phone? Mm. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, that's citizen journalism that actually advances the conversation um, and and documents atrocities, you know, that wouldn't otherwise, you know, yeah. there was no yeah. one there when people were getting the crap beaten out of them, like Byron Rustin was in the 40s when he would do solo bus protests, just to yeah. go back to yeah. him for a second. You know, there weren't any cell phones there. Um, and I think, I mean, this is a really huge question that's, you know, kind of like, philosophical rather than podcastical or whatever that term is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a little shocked here, Gideon. I felt like you really opened the door for Nancy to trash Instagram. And that's she what did. we all wanted. She and instead we got this really terrific nuanced answer about exactly. the different roles of uh, of depicting the world that you know well, not, documentarians offer done, versus but... social media. This is oh this we wanted blood, Nancy. <laughs> Well, I think the thing is that I'm I am old enough that I find the social media landscape a little bewildering. You know, I'd be bewildering. I don't yeah, yeah. I also find it incredibly narcissistic for most people. Like I, I use Facebook, which is now I guess very out of fashion with the youngsters, but you know, it's like here I am, me, me, me. Like I hate that about Facebook. And one of my friends said, Well, you know, it's really just there to promote your personal brand as a filmmaker. And I said, Oh, thank you for explaining that. So all my cute cat pictures, they don't care, no one cares about that. But it, it's a little confusing. I guess I'm pretty old school. Um, and by the way, I should just mention that my brother is in the music business. So that all the stuff about music is actually kind of interesting. And he would probably have a lot to say about what you were talking about. Um, he was an A and R guy at Geffen in the past. Mm. Mm. Um 
So one one kind of fun thing about being his sister is I've met a lot of musicians in my time. <laughs> um, just, you know, to further confuse this conversation, which is already a little, uh, you know, it's rich. It's all over the place. But did I answer your question? I'm sorry. I've... I mean, yeah, you, you sort of said, hey, it's a mix. Um, and you also sort of said it would take 100,000 hours to really get into it. It's, it's <laughs> well, the, I, I the subtext of what you were saying. There's a lot of dreck, obviously, on the Internet. But yeah. but. I do think that we should credit right. people who are standing by when something right. very terrible happens and manage to take video of it and therefore have a means to broadcast it to the world. Nancy, uh, is the word Drek a technical Harvard term that you learned <laughs> back in your days fair. at Harvard? Uh, or is it, or is it? Uh, <laughs> that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were the one who started trashing Instagram. I'm just yeah. your guest yeah. here. Ryan needs to blow his noisemaker now. That's the only thing that can happen. I mean, I, I don't I mean, I, I was very surprised, but impressed by your answer, Nancy. I thought you were going to go like the way that Martin Scorsese does when anybody brings up to him like films yeah, coming yeah. out in any format totally. other than three hours in a cinema where he just gets like really angry. Like I, I thought for sure that's where this was going, but you like, let it be said much more nuanced than Scorsese. Well, that's very kind. He once made a film. I made a film about Susan Sontag and he made a film about the New York review of books that came out at the same time. Oh. And it was sort of my glory that, you know, I think the guardian or some paper in the UK said that my film was better. We were at the same film festival. Well, I <laughs> um, think that's worth this. Yeah. There but you go. Patricia Clarkson, they didn't. She didn't tell me that she was also playing Susan Sontag's voice in his movie, which came out at the same time. She was the voice of Susan Sontag in my movie, and I was like, "Really? You didn't tell me?" I mean, obviously, I'm not Martin Scorsese, but you know. she was really hedging her uh, her, her bets there with that. Um, what projects are you working on right now? I'm curious. Anything I'm slow cooking at the film, moment? I'm starting a film about someone that I seriously doubt either of you have heard of, but I could be wrong. I don't want to. Um, it's a film about a woman named Urvashi Bad, who had been the head of the Gay and Lesbian Task Force in the 1990s. Um, she very sadly died of cancer in 2022, um, but she was she's kind of like a latter day Rustin. Um, you know, she was this very very influential activist and executive director um, who you know led some organizations at a very difficult time in the gay movement. And here was the cat again. I guess maybe he's here to make make sure that I don't get too carried away with anything, you know, <laughs> keep it keep it real. Um, so we're just getting, you know, it's, I've been researching her life and getting to know her family and um, we're still in fairly early days, but it's interesting 20 years after finishing the Rustin film to be starting another film about a very important but not that well-known activist um, who's also, you know, who's queer and a person of color. And of course the cat is playing with the lamp shade. <laughs> <laughs> to add some audio to <laughs> hi lauren well hey i'm nice hiding backstage most of the time you can't see me but i wanted to say when when you mentioned uh you might not have heard this person the first thing that popped in my head is i wanted to say thank you actually for bringing these people to my attention 
because there's a lot of people making things about people we all know and hear about all the time. And I have a lot of appreciation for you and filmmakers that take the time and effort to tell the stories that haven't been told about the people that you see value in our history. So my two cents while I pop off backstage was, was thank you for that. Yes, I've never heard of that person, but I'm looking forward to it because I know you're about to tell that story. And that's exciting to me. Oh, that's very kind. Well, there have been an awful lot of recent, you know, celebrity documentaries, you know, Taylor Swift and this and that person. And, you know, it's fun, but they do get a lot of attention already. I'm much more interested in people who maybe are marginalized, but show something about America and show something about the world we're living in. And I try to make films about the queer community. So I also, you know, I make queer films, you know, so that we can think about things maybe a little bit differently than Taylor Swift. Nothing against Taylor Swift. <laughs> well, I'm thinking like, all right, I, I imagine this documentary is going to be incredible. And 20 years from now, when Netflix makes a movie about it, how about throwing Nancy an executive producer credit or something? <laughs> I mean, come on. Uh, Nancy, th this has been awesome. We're going to definitely keep an eye out for that documentary. Um, you know, big fans of your work here. One last question before we let you go. Do you have any last tips for the indie creators out there to help them move their careers forward? Well, I think... <laughs> I think the cat is literally trying to, she's trying to get the mic. <laughs> <It's hilarious. laughs> Don't let your cat upstage you. That's one. I, I need the cat to meow on the mic right at the end of the interview. It would just she be the perfect dismount you know? to this excellent she's conversation. Like, okay, whatever the cat's tail again. What they're doing on the, on the computer, but what about me? Um, <laughs> I think it's, I think it's about perseverance. Here. <laughs> You're certainly persevering right now. Seriously. Here we go. Again, I guess I should have put her in another room here. I'm so sorry, but you know, if I have okay. anything, maybe the cat's been entertaining at least. Um, no, I think I think it's about keeping going. I mean, whether you're a musician or you're a writer, it's it's not easy. It's it's very challenging to be indie anything or to be an artist. But just you know, I sometimes say that being stubborn. It's like a not a very good trait as a human being, but it's really essential as a filmmaker or an artist. It's just don't give up. You know, I was told over and over again we would never finish the film on Susan Sontag, that nobody cared about this, you know, that I would never raise the money to do it. And it's been shown in 35 countries. And I'm not saying that to brag, but it's just like I couldn't listen to the people who said stop. Um, you know, so I don't know if that's good advice or just there's the cat behind me. She really wants. I think you should maybe come back and interview the cat. I think she wants. <laughs> no, <laughs> but thank you so much for um, these great questions, and it was just fun to be here with you all. So thank you very much. It was very much our pleasure. Thank you for helping us celebrate our 400th episode. I really enjoyed getting to meet you, and uh, we'd love to have you on again real soon. So please stay within our general orbit if you can. Yeah. Uh, our thanks to Nancy Cates and Gideon King and producer Lauren and all of our viewers and listeners to close out the show this week. I would like, Lauren, if you could, if you still have it around, to play the full version of the Break the Business theme song written and recorded by Guinness World Record holder for most consecutive days writing a song, Jonathan Mann. I love this song. I think it's a great way to cap off our 400th show. Will do. And we'll see you next week. This is working data. Break it apart. Rip up that three-piece suit. Open up your heart. If the business isn't working, then it's...
Not your fault, you must become 